Good morning. Good morning. All right, it's good to have all of you here, and especially those of you who are joining online with us. We welcome you as well. And these are some crazy times that we live in today, is it not? I mean, I think that uh, you can feel the same way with me, that it just seems like as we go through everything that's happening in our culture, there's these high points and there's these low points. There's these points where we finally get to a, where we feel like things are returning back to normal, and then all of a sudden things take a turn. And <clears throat> we've experienced that here in Mobile, experienced it in Fairhope as well. This morning, the Fairhope campus is not meeting because we had two, possibly three confirmed cases that were there last Sunday. And so we're just taking a precaution because it was a holiday weekend. It'll be a low attendance anyway. And it gives us a, a, a week, uh, actually two weeks to just watch and see if anything else comes of that to just be on the cautious side. Um, and then here in Mobile, obviously, because of things have changed in Alabama and changed in Mobile, um, that they are requiring face masks in, in public. And tip, I mean, probably technically we don't we're not considered public or private, but we want to make sure that we are good neighbors in that and we want to participate in that because uh, the one thing I can say about some of our government officials is they've done everything they can to allow us to continue meeting. And I think that's an important thing for us. I know there are many people who are at home and they've been at home this entire time um, and I don't fault you for that at all. And I think there's a balance that we have to strike as a staff and as a church that number one, that we are putting uh, the health of everyone as a top priority. And I want you to know that that's what we do in between services. Everything's been wiped down where people have been sitting in the um, one before this, the service before this. And then also after this service, it'll be all wiped down again. Um, things are sterilized. We go above and beyond to make sure that this, this place is clean and as sterile as we can possibly make it for everyone who comes here. And at the same time, there are some people that still don't feel comfortable coming here, and I don't fault them at all. You have to make decisions based on what you believe is right for your family. Uh, but the one thing I do want to reiterate is there's two things that we keep as a top priority. Number one is to make sure that this place is as clean and as sterile as we can possibly make it. The second thing is this, that we hold high authentic community. And I just want you to know that authentic community is not watching by internet at home. Now, I know that that's been the case for many of you, and I don't fault you for that. Don't hear that at all. But what I want to say is that we always want to keep the goal in mind. The goal is to come back together. The goal is to make sure that we are warm bodies, encouraging one another, and, and, and that we live in this kind of authentic community, not this distant where I'm hearing and getting information, but not interacting with the people of God. And so that's where we are trying to strike the best balance we can. So our goal is to always keep this open uh, as much as we can. So that's why we want to participate in the mask wearing here, if that's what they want to require, and that's what helps then we'll do that because we want to make sure that we keep this place open. And in Fairhope, we take one week off to hopefully come right back at the next week and, and open back up again because we do believe that the scripture says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. It doesn't mean that you have to be there every Sunday, but it does mean that you always keep in front of you, this is the goal and this is what Christ established for us. And so we are always keeping that as a goal that we're moving towards. And so I just wanted you to know where we are as a community of believers and how we're fitting into this and finding our way through this as well. How many of you would say that during this time of experiencing these things that you have personally experienced some sorrow? I don't know, nobody, a couple of people, yes. There's three or four. So everybody else is just like, nope, no sorrow. <laughs> Loving every minute of it. 
Um, now, I, I think that we all have, and, and uh, whether it's from what's happening or maybe it's something that's happened during it. You know, we all are familiar that we lost one of our pastors um, to his battle with cancer, Mark Powell, and we're going to have his memorial here towards the end of the month. Um, and that all happened during this time where we couldn't get together and, and celebrate his life. And talking to Dana, his wife, one of the reasons that she has put off um, his memorial so long is because she's like, I can't imagine a memorial honoring a guy where nobody can hug each other because that's what the guy was all about. And I can understand that. I can understand that, that perspective and that, that feeling. And there's sorrow that's associated with that when you lose someone and yet you can't fully honor their life because of what's happening in the culture around us. And then the very act of what's happening in the culture, I think there's these upswings. We think finally things are going to get back to normal. And then all of a sudden there's a nosedive and things don't go back to normal. It seems like we take a couple steps forward and we take three steps back. And I don't know if you felt that or not, but I get the sense from more and more people when I talk to them that they're like, I just want to go back to normal. I just want to go back to the way things were before all of this happened. I want to get back to where I can go to a restaurant and not fear for my life. I want to go uh, to church and not have to wear a mask or not be able to shake somebody's hand or not be able to hug somebody or whatever it is. Everybody wants to return to this aspect of normal. And I think we can relate to that. But here's the thing. I think this passage here really speaks to that mindset. So I want you to hold that, kind of take that thought and kind of tuck it in the back of your mind as we go through this passage today, that we would all like to return to some bit of normalcy. Now, our passage here today is an enlightening passage, and it's actually one that's very encouraging because it begins to take the turn towards Everything that Jesus has said so far is, is somewhat sorrowful in the sense that he's going to be leaving, um, that he's not going to be with them anymore. They're going to be enduring persecution. There is hope in it because he said that I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you, and the Holy Spirit's going to give you the power that you need. He's going to give you the direction that you need, and it's the greatest gift. I have to leave because it's better for you that I leave so that I can send the Holy Spirit. So there's this powerful part of it, but it's all in the midst of this, this turmoil. Well, now in this passage right here, Jesus begins to talk about how that sorrow is going to turn into joy. So we're going to look at verses 16 through 24, but let's start with really that first section, which is this interaction between Jesus and the disciples in verses 16 through 19. It says, a little while, underline that if you like underlining things in your Bible, because he says that seven times in this passage. Seven times the phrase little while shows up. In a little while, you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is it that he says to us a little while and you will not see me? And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while you will see me. So do you see that repetition that happens in that passage? Well, John is being intentional. Remember, John's probably not recording a verbatim conversation. So he's taking what Jesus said, but he's also emphasizing what he wants to emphasize in what Jesus said. So the fact that that phrase shows up over and over again, a little while, a little while, a little while, is very important and should draw our eyes to them. Um, I think if we were to contemplate for a moment the journey that the disciples were on as they've been following Jesus, 
that none of us could really fathom. None of us could really emotionally understand the roller coaster that they've been on. I hear so many people like, you know, if I was in the first century, I would have stuck with Jesus all the way to the cross. Those guys were fools. I mean, he, he fed thousands of people. He walked on water. I mean, why in the world would you not trust him at the end? Here's the thing. Every one of you would, decide, would, um, would, would leave him, right? You would desert Jesus. I would do the same thing. Because in their mindset, they had this idea of what the kingdom of God was going to be. They had the idea of overthrowing the Romans and pushing out the oppressors. And Jesus, at the end of this, is not fitting into the narrative that they thought. And all of a sudden, think about the journey they've been on, just going into Jerusalem. As they go into Jerusalem, they have the triumphal entry. Jesus is coming in. Everyone is proclaiming him as this king. They're sitting there going, yes, this is exactly what we envisioned. This is what we've been hoping for. This is the beginning of the revolution. And then all of a sudden, Jesus says, hey, go to this upper room place, and there's going to be a guy, and you're going to see him and tell him that the master has asked for the room, and everything will be prepared, and you go and get this, and you go get that. And they go up there, and they're like, yes, this is it. This is the game plan. He's going to tell us exactly how it's going to go down. And then all of a sudden, this king puts on the robe of a servant, servant and begins to wash the feet of his disciples. And all of a sudden, things really begin to turn at that point. The expectations have changed. And now all of a sudden, Jesus begins to say things. I'm going to be, be betrayed, and one of you is going to betray me. What, what? One of us? I mean, we're here to be a part of this kingdom. How, why would one of us betray you? Here's what's also going to happen. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise from the dead three days later. They don't even hear that rise from the dead three days later because they're still trying to process that first part. What do you mean handed over? What do you mean betrayed? And so you can imagine the sorrow that's filling their hearts at this moment. We've been studying for the last couple of months just a conversation that flowed from them being in the upper room and celebrating that Passover meal to their apparently their, their travels to Mount Olive, the Mount of Olives and going in there and having conversations after they even get there. And it's all this discourse that Jesus is giving them about what is to come. He's warning them of what is before them. And if you think about what is before them. After they get to the Mount of Olives, if they thought things were going bad, they go from bad to worse. I mean, Jesus, this king, this one who is so powerful, this one who has all the answers, begins to throw himself on the ground. He seems overwhelmed and sorrowful in his heart. He keeps praying over and over again. He keeps coming back to them and saying, won't you pray for me? Won't you pray for me in my hour? Why will you not pray for me? And he goes back down and throws himself back down again. And he's sweating and drops of blood are coming out. What in the world happened to this person that we thought was going to be our king? And then all of a sudden the Romans come and Peter goes, well, he's in no condition to fight. I'll fight for him. And Jesus says, no, that's not what we're going to do. And he's taken over and he's arrested and ultimately crucified. Can you imagine the emotional roller coaster these guys have been on, not in just the ministry of Jesus, but literally in hours what they were experiencing? Sorrow had overtaken them. The beautiful picture, though, is the gospel also captures that within three days, their sorrow takes a 180 and goes to complete overwhelming joy. 
I mean, it's, it's hard to fully even understand that 180 of emotions that they probably experienced when Mary and the other women came into the room where they were hiding out, remember, where all of the, all of the shades had been drawn, all the doors were locked and the windows were locked and you had to have the secret knock or the passcode to get into there because they were scared for their lives and they were only letting people who were with them coming in there. And all of a sudden they have this rapid knock at the door and she comes in and she says, you're not going to believe this, but his body is not there. He's risen from the dead. And all of a sudden everything that they thought was going wrong now all of a sudden has a potential to go right again. And all of a sudden there is this, this influx of joy into their life mixed with this sorrow. Matthew 28, 8 captures it, I think, very well uh, when it talks about the women who were coming back and reporting this. And it says, so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and what? Fear and great joy mixed together. Isn't that an amazing combination? Fear and great joy. And they ran to tell his disciples. So I don't think we can even imagine how those women felt. As fast as their expectations had taken a nosedive into the ground, all of a sudden this empty tomb infuses them with hope again. As much as the disciples had nosedived into despair, all of a sudden this news spirals their hearts upwards in ways that we can only imagine. Of course, when they actually look back, they're going to understand everything that Jesus said, understand all this conversation that he had with them in the upper room, understand the conversation that he had with them on the road to the Mount of Olives and even up there. They're going to understand the situations. They're going to remember. Jesus already told them when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to call to remembrance all these things I've said, and you're going to understand it at that point. But I love that phrase, a little while, a little while a little while. John's drawing us our attention to something. I think it's something that's important. The word a little while can carry two connotations to it. It can, ter- it can carry the connotations of, hey, y'all sit quiet because just in a little while the sermon will be over. All right. And I think y'all say that to each other every week or every other week when Kyle's preaching. But um, uh, what happens is we, we could use that word. I'm kidding. We could use that word to say in a little while, like in just a few moments, like not far away from here. But we also use that term in a little while to mean a longer period of time, right? Uh, I think we can all look back on our lives and talk about how brief and short our lives seem, especially when you get into your 40s and your 50s and your 60s and your 70s, and you're like, life went by so fast. I can remember being a teenager thinking, I'm never going to turn 16, and then I'm never going to graduate from high school, and then it just seems like everything takes so long, and then there really is this hill, this proverbial hill that you hit, and it is like downhill on the other side, and everything just gets faster and faster, and you're like, where are the brakes on this thing? Because it just goes by so fast. And when you look back on your life, it's like it really was a vapor. But, you know, the scripture told us that it is. It told us everything that is in this life, this whole existence is but a vapor, a, a wisp of air. And so when we begin to think about our life and we think about everything that we are, there is this just a little while that is very applicable to our experience. Number one, when he was saying this to them, and literally in just a little while, he was going to be gone. He was going to be arrested. And in just a little while, they were going to see him again, okay? And it was going to be three or four days later. But I think there's a bigger picture here, and I'll show you what I mean as we go through this. The picture here is really one of victorious joy. 
It's a picture of their sorrow being transformed into something they never expected. Look at verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Now, if you take that and overlay it on the conversation that they just had, I find that very interesting. You, in a little while, you won't see me, but in a little while, you will see me again. Overlay that to the world will rejoice. You won't see me. They're going to be rejoicing. But in a little while, you will see me again. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When? When you see me again. Why? Because when you see me again, all I can just tell you right now is in a little while, you're going to see me again. But I cannot tell you how that's going to overwhelm your heart. I can't tell you what it means because literally we're overcoming the greatest enemy that has ever come against humanity, and that is the kingdom of darkness. The grave will be defeated. Death will be defeated. Sin will be defeated. And there will be no more heartache and sorrow in the kingdom of God that is coming in just a little while. But until then, we have to endure. We have to endure. You see, one thing I find very interesting about verse 20 is what Jesus is telling his disciples they're going to go through, oddly enough, is exactly what he went through. Now, the reason I find that interesting is because if I, as I go back and pour over the Gospels and I listen to what Jesus is saying, ultimately what Jesus has said over and over again is that his experience is going to be our experience. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Okay? Over and over again, he says that what the Father has given to him, he gives to us. Everything that is his has become ours, both in the positive and in the negative both the things that are everlasting and the things that are temporary. Yes, there's going to be sorrow. And Jesus experienced that sorrow, did he not? I mean, think about what happened on the Mount of Olives. Think about the agony and the anguish that he was going through as he was praying. Think about the, the very honest, emotional appeal to the Father. If there's any way this cup of wrath can be removed, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Think about the cross and the cat of nine tails that he was hit with. Think about the crown of thorns that they placed on his head and the blood running into his eyes and his mouth. Think about the, the cross that he had to bear, that they didn't sand that thing down. And after beating his back with the cat of nine tails and just literally ripping his flesh open, he had to carry this, this cross with all the, the, the different splinters of the wood to the place that he was going to be executed, then being nailed to this piece of wood, and then being mocked and ridiculed. I mean, all of that was before him. It was heavy sorrow. But Hebrews chapter 12 recounts that whole experience like this. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And luckily, it doesn't start there. I'll stop there. It says, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And the very next words that the writer of Hebrews says is this, consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you don't grow weary and lose heart. Somehow Jesus' experience is our experience. And that's what the scripture keeps pointing us back to over and over again. And just as he went through this moment of sorrow, we will go through moments of sorrow in our own life. And the mixed feelings that we have will be this on and off experience that we have as we follow after Jesus in this life and in this world. 
I love what it says there in Matthew, where it says that they had this mixture of fear and great joy. That is, my brothers and sisters, the human experience of following after Jesus. We will always find ourselves with a mixture of fear and great joy. Now, I said, well, the Bible says to not fear. That's how I know your experience is going to be filled with fear. Because <laughs> it says over and over and over again, don't fear, don't fear, don't fear, don't fear. And there's no reason to say that if the people don't fear. The reason to say that over and over again is because you are going to fear. You're going to fear over and over and over again. Now, is that what God wants you to do? No, he doesn't want us to do that. But he knows our human condition. And he knows that as we follow after him, there's going to be this mixture of fear and great joy that we constantly keep coming back to, that we constantly keep experiencing. And you know what's amazing? I think we experience it as humans and followers of Jesus because Jesus experienced it. I don't know if fear is the word that I would give to what he was experiencing there in the garden, but it was very close to that, if, if, if not fear itself. It was this idea that there was something before him that was heavy and burdensome. But yet he kept going to the well that he knew he could drink from that would sustain him as he walked through that. But that doesn't change the thing, it changes the, the perspective that it was heavy. It was a burden that was heavy for him to carry as a human being, fully divine, but we also have to remember fully human. And there's so many emotions that are connected with that part of his being. You know, when we lose a loved one, and we are believers, and we know that they were a believer, there's a mixture of fear and great joy. There's a mixture of sorrow and great joy. There's this picture that we have of the person and how much we're going to miss them because there's this void that's left in our life. And yet, in the very next breath, we may say, I would never ask them to come back because I know that they're in their reward. They're in their eternal reward. They're in their eternal presence of God, that's, I would never ask them to come back. And yet there's a void inside of us. We live with sorrow and great joy at the same time. Sometimes it's a picture of fear and great joy. I know my dad uh, lost a child. My mom and dad, my uh, next oldest sister died of leukemia when she was 10. They had to bury their 10-year-old daughter in the ground. And if I heard once, I heard more than that my mom say how sorrowful and yet how joyful she can be at the same time. And she would say things like, I know that she's in a better place. I know that she's with the Lord. I know where her faith was. She was as strong in her faith as a young girl as anyone I've ever seen. And yet at the same time, they would weep because of the loss of that child. There is this despair and there's this great joy. And you know, that great joy can only come from our relationship with the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who comes to us and he manifests the truth of who Jesus is for us. He keeps pointing us back to the cross, back to what Jesus said. And he keeps saying, you know what? Jesus told you that it was gonna be difficult in this life. Jesus said there was gonna be loss. Jesus said that you were gonna walk through difficult times. But he also said, take courage. I've overcome the world. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. 
So there's this picture as we walk through this life, there will be difficulty before us. There will be these things that we go through that will really challenge our heart and challenge our faith. There will be these things that are set before us that will cause great fear to well up inside of us. Are things ever going to be normal again? And then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit infuses joy and says, normal? What's normal? Normal is what we had in the garden. And yes, we are going to bring you back to that. But don't settle for anything less than that. That's the goal. And you can taste of it every time you pray. You can taste of the garden every time you walk with the Lord. Every time you walk with the Father and you have a conversation with him, you have a taste of the garden. You have a taste of what's before you. And if that doesn't overwhelm you with joy, nothing can. You see... One of the roles, I believe, of the Holy Spirit is to make things very real to us that are actually distant to us. Just as Jesus promised the Holy Spirit was going to come and reveal these things, and in just a little while, he's going to be gone, and just a little while, he would come back. I think that just a little while was very applicable to where they were right then, but it was also applicable to where they were going to be for the rest of their lives. They were constantly going to be walking in and out of these times where they were very aware of Christ, and then when they take their eyes off of him, and they look at the things around them and circumstances that they find themselves in. And it's the Holy Spirit who comes and keeps drawing our eyes to what is real but not yet experienced. I call it the already not yet. I'm not the only one that's called it that. But I think you know what I'm talking about. We've talked about it so many times here at Mars Hill. The already not yet is you are already saved, 100% justified, but you are not yet experiencing the fullness of your salvation. Why? Because there's one day where your salvation will afford you the very absence of sin, no temptation ever. So you are saved, but not to the fullest capacity that you're ever going to experience. You are a child of God, but you aren't experiencing it to the fullest weight of that. When you walk in glory and you experience the presence of God, that is the glorification of your salvation. So we have been justified. We are being sanctified in preparation for being glorified. I love verse 21 because it uses this phenomenon of, of giving birth to illustrate what the disciples' whole transforming experience was going to be like. Look what it says in verse 21. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Maybe y'all have ever been at the birth of a baby. Everybody should raise your hand. You were there at your birth. You were a baby, okay? You were there when that happened. So, but you may not remember that one. But, so I am really talking about, have you ever been there for the birth of one of your children, if you have a, a child, or maybe a loved one, or a sister, or a brother, maybe you were helping out. If you've ever been there for the birth, then you kind of know this picture of what's happening here. I mean, I'm telling you that, that, that childbearing is like this, tumultuous process. I mean, it is, it is just wrought with pain and, and, and agony and having to breathe the right way and just thinking forward and just, I mean, your body's just in flux and all these things are happening. And then all of a sudden the baby comes and all of that stuff that you're going through at that moment just 
fades away into this incredible joy when that child is placed in your arms. And I can tell you that when I had my first child and they took Colin and they placed him in my arms, I forgot all the pain and anguish that I went through in bearing that child. I mean, it just all dissipated whenever I saw his little face. No, I'm kidding. Um, but, you know, with my wife, I've been there three times to see this. And there is this process in pain. You can tell when the woman is not even thinking about the baby, she's thinking about what's happening with her body. She's thinking about the pain signals that she's getting and she's responding to those and she's making sure she's listening to what the doctor says and she's talking to the nurses and she may be cursing her husband. I don't know. I, don't, I heard that happens. My wife never did that. But anyway, there's all these different emotions and, and maybe these a flux of emotions that are happening in this moment. And then all of a sudden, the baby's there. And when the baby's there, it's like everything that happened before that, for that last hour, that last 24 hours, however long that person was in labor, all of a sudden, they're not thinking about that. I don't think at all this passage means that they are oblivious to the fact that they went through pain. No, there is pain that continues even after childbearing, but it's not what their focus is anymore. Their focus is in this incredible miracle of birth, of life that has come into the world. And it's like, it blows your mind because how does this happen? How does this really take place? How do we experience this incredible kind of joy of seeing life come into the world? You see, I think that's a fitting picture because it's so much of what we experience when we become followers of Jesus. I mean, there is this, this pain from our sin that we become very aware of. When the Holy Spirit reveals to you the rebel that you've been to God's ways and God's presence, when he reveals to you the sinner that you are, there is this sorrow that grips your heart. There is this sorrow that you become very aware of. And, and there's also a fear that comes in because up to that point, maybe you thought, well, I can earn God's love or earn God's favor because I'm better than most people. But when the Holy Spirit realizes that your best efforts are rubbish, trash before God, then all of a sudden there is this fear that I have nothing to offer. I don't have any bargaining chips. And then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit in a way that only the Holy Spirit can do it, brings this truth that Paul talks about in the book of Romans, that even though we were distant, God loved us and he came close to us and he chose us and he brought out of death new life. And there is this joy where there was sorrow. That's the picture of salvation. And I think that's why Jesus uses the birth of a child as this beautiful picture. Listen to what he says again. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her, what does it say? Hour has come. What did Jesus say just previous to having this conversation? He said to the disciples and to those who were gathered around when he was in the temple, when the two Gentiles had come forward, the two Greeks, he said, my hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. And he relates that same thing to an hour that comes for a woman when she gives birth. I think Jesus is relating the fact that through the turmoil and the sorrow that he's going through, life is about to come into the world for the first time that the humans have ever experienced this kind of life. And he keeps telling them, it's the Holy Spirit. 
I've got to go so the Holy Spirit can come. You want to understand life? The Holy Spirit will show you what life is. You want to understand truth? The Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth. You want to live with power? The Holy Spirit will give you power. You want to understand your relationship with God? You want to connect with him more deeply? The Holy Spirit will take you into those moments and allow you to understand and experience God at a level you never could experience from your sinful, depraved perspective. What a beautiful picture. We go through the same thing as believers. We were aware of our sin, and yet we come to the point of new life. I think we even do that with the world. We, we see the sin of the world, but the Holy Spirit keeps reminding us that, you know what, this rebellion that you see, it's not new. It's not catching God by surprise. It's something that's always been there. But remember what the word says, one day, the earth and heaven will pass away and there will be a new heaven and a new earth and the city of God will be there and God will dwell with his people and he will be our God and we will be his children. Something that we always have to keep in mind and keep before us. You know, something that I see from Moses to Abraham to Paul, every one of them talk about difficult times that they walk through and then a joy that comes on the other side of those difficult times. And it reminds me of this truth that I jotted down in my notes. Every trial bears the potential of immense joy. Every trial bears the potential of immense joy. Verse 22, Jesus tells the disciples that joy is to be a present possession. Look at verse 22. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Underline the last part of verse 22 and memorize that and put that before you on your mirror when you're brushing your teeth or whatever it is you do when you stare at, you put that in front of that, whether it's in your car or on your mirror in your bathroom or somewhere in the kitchen. No one can take your joy from you. I want you to think about that for a moment. Do y'all believe that that's true? It's, it's what Jesus said. Do you believe it's true? I want you to think about this for a moment then. That means that Satan cannot take your joy. It also means the circumstances of your life can't take your joy. Your spouse can't take your joy. Your wayward child can't take your joy. Your failures can't take your joy. Your sinful eclipses back into who you used to be, those momentary lapses of who you are in Jesus. When you go, guess what? That can't steal your joy. Then why are so many people not joyful? Here's why. Because they gave up their joy. If not, if it can't be taken from you, the only way not to have it is to release it. You know, Satan has no power over you, has zero. The only power he has over you is to lie to you. And the only power he gets is when you give it to him, when you believe his lies. Your joy cannot be taken from you. It's important that most often we understand that the greatest joys in life usually come out of the greatest sorrows in life. Have you ever noticed that? I love what um, John Piper said one time. He said, a thousand sorrows teaches a man to preach. 
And I think that's true. I can get up here and talk to you about all of my successes, you know, both of them. And um, probably you will not relate to those, right? Maybe you'll relate to some of it. But if I was to get up here and just take a couple of hours and tell you of all of my failures, you would sit here for two hours and listen and go, yep, I know what you're talking about. Yep, I know what that is. Yeah, I can experience that. You know why? Because heartache is central to the human experience. And while I may not understand your success and I may not understand the things you've achieved, the one thing I can understand is the heartache that you've experienced. You know why? Because it's central to what we've all experienced. Hey, you've been dumped. I've been dumped. Let's sit down and have some coffee and talk about it because we all know that feeling, right? I mean, it is. It's central. And here's the thing. I think it's central to our experience because it is central to God's experience. Just like we said, everything that Jesus went through is what he keeps saying you're going to go through. And, and Jesus is, is really the, the last stage of what began all the way back after the garden where God created this whole family and they rejected him and his truth. And even after they rejected him, he chose a group of people and he called them his own and they rejected him and walked away. And here with Jesus, he sends Jesus and to his own people that he was promised for, you know, thousands of years. His own people reject him. I mean, the whole scripture is about a God who lovingly chases after his creation and his creation constantly says no. Heartache is central to our experience, I believe, because it's central to God's experience. Jesus didn't speak this to them because the cross was near. I think that's part of it. But I think the reason Jesus says this to them is because he knew that difficulty was always going to be near to them. And you think about the time that they lived after the cross. It wasn't like hunky-dory and there were no problems anymore. No, the problems escalated. It got worse. They walked through even more difficulty. Every one of them were executed for their faith except for John who was sent to an island. I mean, think about that. Every one of them lost their lives. Their lives didn't get better. They got more difficult. Jesus knew that this was going to be a difficult journey. Let me just tell you something about joy. Joy is something that has to be maintained. Can I tell you that? I should be honest with you. Joy is something that you have to maintain. And you're sitting there looking at me going, Ooh, if it's up to me to maintain it. Well, here, let me let you off the hook for a moment. The way you maintain it is just yield to the Spirit. That's it. That's all you have to do. That's your part in it. It's not you making good decisions on your own. It's not you taking, taking your life by the horns and making sure it's going in the right direction. No, your part is to yield to the Spirit, and the Spirit gives you wisdom. The Spirit leads you into life. The Spirit leads you into understanding. The Spirit convicts you of sin. The Spirit fills you with joy. The Spirit keeps drawing you back to Christ, drawing you back to the Father. You yield to the Spirit, and joy keeps coming into your life. Which really leads us to these last couple of verses. Verse 23, in that day, in that day, what day? What day is he talking about? Well, what did he just say? You have sorrow in your hearts now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. Resurrection. And no one will take your joy from you. I will not die again. I will always live. I will be here forever. I will never give up on you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. And ask, 
and you will receive that what? Isn't that amazing? That it seems what Jesus is saying is that your whole prayer life was intended to bring you joy. Prayer was the thing that God gives to you to instill joy in you. Listen to what it says again, verse 24. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I think that's interesting that it says before now you've never prayed in my name. And that's true if you think about it. You go back before Jesus, nobody ever prayed in Jesus' name. Not even the disciples. The only way they prayed was the way Jesus told them to pray, which is our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's not until the cross that they pray in Jesus' name. So something changed at the cross. Something changed with the cross. And I want you to understand when he says pray in my name, my name. He's not saying add a tagline to your prayer in Jesus name. We pray. Amen. Because we do that. We get so used to it. We've heard it as children. We hear our grandfathers and our fathers pray in that way. We hear the preachers pray in that way. We hear everybody pray and they add that to the end. And so we've done the same thing, adding something to the end. But the truth is it means something. And I don't have time in the limited time I have here to go into the depths of this, but I do want to point some things out before the cross, the disciples didn't understand this whole aspect of prayer, but the Holy Spirit is going to come and he's going to lead them into prayer. And it's prayer is not about getting what you want. He says very clearly, prayer is going to be about getting you on God's agenda, not God onto your agenda. When you pray, it's not done in your name. Therefore, it's not about your kingdom. It's about his kingdom because it's in his name. Here's another thing. Praying is done in the merit of Jesus, not in your own merit. Now, I think that we would cognitively agree with that, going, oh, yeah, I know, I, I can't pray because of how good I am. But listen to me, haven't you ever felt that time where you went and prayed and you felt a little more bold because you hadn't sinned in a while, like, you know, the last 15 minutes? And so you're like, you know what? I've done well for 15 minutes. And so you go, but you know what I'm talking about, right? You go in and there's nothing really major that's happened in your life. And you go in and you feel a little more bold. And then there are those times in your life where you are defeated and defeated and defeated. And you've given in to sin over and over again. And you just think to yourself, I just don't even feel like praying. I can't pray. Why? Because somehow you think that you enter into God's presence because of how good you are or how bad you are keeps you out of it. And you've bought a lie. You've given your joy over to someone. Because you've never entered into God's presence because of how good you are, anything that you had to offer. It is always in the merit of Jesus. So whenever you pray in Jesus' name, I would challenge you to even change this every once in a while, just so you remember. On the merit of Jesus, I ask these things because I don't deserve any of them. And if I'm asking on the merit of Jesus, don't you think it should be for his kingdom and not mine? The second thing is this. Not only do we pray in his merit, I think the second thing is we pray in his character. Oswald Chambers actually interprets praying in Christ's name as praying in his nature. So in other words, he sees that as praying in the nature of Christ. In other words, the things that Jesus desires is what I desire, and that's what I'm praying for. He says this, the idea of prayer is not in order to get answers from God. Prayer is perfect and complete oneness with God. So the point of prayer is not to get something, it's to get into 
the relationship with God more deeply so that we become one with him. And when we become one with him, the things that God desires and the things of God's heart become the thing that we desire in our heart. This can only be done in the power of the spirit. In the power of the spirit, we can uncover truth. And the last thing I wanna tell you is this, answered prayer, when we pray on the merit of Jesus, when we pray in the character of Jesus, it brings unending joy. Verse 24, until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive. Why? That your joy may be what? Not present, not visible, not experienced, full. If I understand this right then, this is telling me that one of the greatest benefits of prayer is the maintaining of my joy. That somehow without prayer, joy will never be present in my life. It'll be all sorrows and I will be focused on my circumstances. But somehow it's in prayer that my eyes get diverted off my circumstances, off my kingdom, off of all those things that I've been living for and focused on something that lasts forever. Our lives can be transformed by repeatedly asking in the name of Jesus for things that fit the character of Jesus. And when we see those things come to life, it breeds joy unending. I told you that it's all about the already not yet. And the already not yet is basically this picture that somehow what is true, we aren't experiencing to its fullest degree, but it still doesn't change the fact that it's already 100% true. Do you believe that you're a child of God? Yeah, absolutely. 100%, you're a child of God. There's nothing that's going to happen that's going to make that more solidified. But yet as we walk through this life, we are challenged to doubt that by circumstances. Do you believe that you're saved? 100% through Jesus Christ, and that's it. Yeah, we believe that. But you know what? As we walk through this life and the different trials and tribulations we walk through, we are tempted to doubt that. And we're tempted to think that somehow we add to our salvation by the good things that we do. Already not yet. The Holy Spirit keeps coming into our situations as we walk through difficult times and says, yeah, I know it looks difficult, but you're living in the not yet. But let me tell you what's already true. You're already a child of God. You're already more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. You've already won. You've already defeated death, hell, and the grave in Christ Jesus. You already have proud standing before the Father on the merit of Jesus Christ. You don't have to earn any of the rest of that. You are already a part of the kingdom. You are already a favored child. You are already have you experienced it to the fullest degree? Not yet, but that doesn't change the fact that it's already 100% true. As you leave today, I want you to challenge you to think about this and talk about this family discussion, whether it's with your church family or whether it's with your family at home. What does it really mean to pray in Jesus' name? 
I mean, I think that's something we could really discuss. No matter how old you are, how long you've been walking with Jesus, or how new, uh, how old you are in age, or how young you are, we all are familiar with praying in Jesus' name. But I think it bears a discussion for us to say, what do we really mean when we pray in Jesus' name? And do you remember earlier in the service when I said, it seems to just get more depressing all the time when we can't have our normal back? that really when we walk through this difficulty that we're walking through as a nation, as a culture, as a church, that our heart keeps going, I just want things to go back to normal. Well, I want you to see the very clear application here. Don't you know that after Jesus was arrested and crucified, all the disciples looked at each other and said, I just want things to go back to normal. I just want things to be like they were before all this started happening. I just want to go back to the sea and watch him walk on water. I just want to go back and watch him turn all that bread into so much that we can have a feast with thousands of people there. I just want to go back to normal. And yet, if they returned to that normal, they would have missed the most incredible, freeing experience that came from the darkest time of their entire life. What is normal? You see... You never know what God has for you on the other side of your struggle. You never know what God has for you on the other side of your difficulty, on the other side of your circumstances. It's very easy to say, oh, I wish things could go back to normal. But the question I want you to ask yourself is, what is normal? Before Corona, was that really normal? Have you settled for that as normal? Normal goes all the way back to the garden and things aren't gonna get normal until we are glorified. Don't settle for anything less than that. Listen to the Spirit when he says, already, not yet, but don't quit believing. Hold on. Put your faith in Christ and keep walking. Take your eyes off of the situation and put your eyes on him. You can make it. You can make it because he made it. And he's going to get you there. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for an incredible picture of what our daily life looks like even now. And Lord, there's the difficulty of the virus. There's the difficulty of the angst that exists between so many Americans. There is also just the spiritual struggles that we walk through. There are struggles that we experience in our life when we experience loss or failure or disappointment. God, whatever the situation is, Lord, help us to understand that there is something joyous that we can experience now. And there is a truth that is going to undergird us as we walk out of that struggle. Lord, thank you for the fact that you make sense out of our difficulties and our suffering. Holy Spirit, none of this can happen unless you come and show us. Holy Spirit, we need you every hour of every day to point us to truth. We need you every hour of every day to remind us of what's real and what's lasting and what's eternal. We need you to remind us every day that it's not about our kingdom, it's about the kingdom of God. We need you to remind us every day that we're not sinners, we're saints. And in that reminder, empower us to be what you've called us to be. We ask this in the name the merit, the character of Jesus Christ.